Minister Shinzo Abe has announced he is stepping down because of persistent health problems. He apologised that he was resigning with a year left of his term and before fulfilling several key political pledges. When Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo unexpectedly resigned recently, one long-held policy goal he left unfinished was revising Japan's post-war constitution. In the past seven years and eight months, we have addressed variety of challenges. There are a lot of the challenges we haven't completed. For years, Abe and members of the Liberal Democratic Party had announced their intentions to change aspects of the Japanese constitution, including the famous Article 9 No War Clause, sparking regular large-scale protests across Japan. Why does the Liberal Democratic Party want to change the Constitution? Why was constitutional revision so personally important to Abe? How popular is the idea of revising the Constitution in Japan? And now that Abe has resigned, how will this impact the constitutional revision question moving forward? I'm Tristan Gruneau, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on Japanese constitutional revision, I talked with Dr. Helen Hardacre, Reichauer Institute Professor of Japanese Religions and Society at Harvard University and founding director of the Reichauer Institute Research Project on Constitutional Revision in Japan. I started by asking Dr. Hardacre to describe the background of the constitutional revision issue. Please note that the first half of our interview was recorded before Prime Minister Abe's surprise resignation. Certainly. I'll be happy to start at the beginning. As you and your audience probably know, Japan's constitution, formerly Dai Nihon Koku Kempo, was implemented in 1947 and represents a revision of the Meiji Constitution of 1889. The post-war constitution, though, is actually so different from the Meiji constitution that in terms of its content and guiding principles, it's really quite a different document. And it was composed over a period of about a week by officials in the American occupation of Japan. So that means that the constitution, the major code of law in Japan today, has actually been authored by an occupying power. And that is one reason that the proposal to revise it arises in the first place, less from opposition to particular clauses in it than the fact of its foreign authorship. And I believe that this is a major issue for the Liberal Democratic Party and the current push under Prime Minister Abe Shinzo to revise the Constitution now. That is the idea that Japan should be governed by a code of law written by and for Japanese. And of course, that aspect of the question should be understandable to a North American audience quite readily if we transpose the question and ask whether we would be content to live under a code of law written by an occupying power. So that constitutes one main impetus behind the current revisionists. On the other hand, those who oppose revision point out that the Constitution's main principles of 
popular sovereignty, human rights, and pacifism have wide popular support in the country, and they would not like to see a revision that would go backwards in the direction of the Meiji Constitution, which was much more intent on establishing a strong state and a compliant populace. So you have now a somewhat paradoxical situation in that those who propose to revise the Constitution actually are taking a very conservative and traditionalist stance. Some would call it a nationalist stance, whereas those who resist revision actually represent a progressive point of view. So that tells you something about how the different sides of the debate have faced off. So the LDP desires to change the Constitution in part from the standpoint that I've just explained, and it has up until now made a variety of proposals for how it would revise the Constitution. One of these, in a document of 2012, proposed to revise Article 9, the clause in which Japan renounces the use of war, but also Article 24, which states the essential equality of the sexes, as well as trimming back a number of articles that set out the rights of the people. So that would kind of round out our picture of where things are at the moment. You mentioned Abe Shinzo's push to revise the constitution, and I want to come back to that in a second, but you also mentioned that the post-war constitution is dramatically different from the Meiji constitution. And as you mentioned, Article 9 comes to mind, this uh, renunciation of war and the renunciation of having an offensive military, uh, but other things like you know the changing of the emperor system, that you know these things are very popular, as you mentioned. So we've heard a lot about constitutional revision, and it's long been a goal of people like Prime Minister. Minister Abe Shinzo. And for him, it's really been a central component of his platform. Can you talk about why, for Abe, revision is such a big deal? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. Prime Minister Abe has at various times signaled his desire to revise both Article 1, which states the emperor's position, and also Article 9. In terms of Article 1, the emperor's position in the post-war constitution is, just as you mentioned, to be the symbol of the state and of the unity of the people. That represents a huge change from the Meiji constitution in which he was held to be an absolute sovereign, sacred and inviolable was the prose at the time. And of course, the addition in the post-war constitution of Article 9, in which Japan renounces the use of war, that is a complete turnaround from the Meiji constitution in which the emperor was also the supreme commander of Japan's military forces. So there's a huge change in both of those respects. And as for Prime Minister Abe, there are several reasons that people have proposed to explain why he seems to be so intent upon revision. One of them that's often mentioned is that it was a goal of his grandfather, Prime Minister Kishinobusuke, 
which Kishi was unable to attain, and therefore it would be a kind of act of filial piety to fulfill the dream that his grandfather had conceived of. But I believe he is also very intent on a change to Article 9, though the way he would change it, or what he has said about how and why he would change it, has itself changed over time. In earlier instances, he has, or the Liberal Democratic Party, has proposed a variety of changes in which the second clause of the article, which says that Japan will not maintain any military force, that would be dropped. The current proposal is that the name of the self-defense force should be added to the article. However, when the prime minister has been asked recently what difference would it make to add the name of the self-defense force there, he says, oh, nothing would change. No concrete fact of governance or details about how the military might be deployed would change. But then hearing that, others have asked, well, then if it doesn't make any difference, are you saying it would just be a symbolic gesture? And if that is the case, what is the point of going through the huge exercise it would be to hold a referendum on the Constitution and an amendment of that kind? We also can notice that since around 2015, when the LDP adopted new security legislation allowing for a much wider scope of deployments for the self-defense force, Abe has continued to talk about revision, but although he apparently has the numbers in the diet, that is a two-thirds majority in both houses, if you add the representation by the junior coalition partner, Komeito, plus likely votes from other conservative parties. Although he probably has the numbers, he hasn't gone forward to actually put it on the docket. So we might ask, well, why is that? There are a couple of reasons one can think of. The hard politics answer is that if he did that, he might lose the support of Komeito in terms of electioneering work for the LDP in future elections. Komeito does really not want to go forward with this and has said so fairly plainly. So if Abe went forward now, he might lose. He might well lose. And that would be a tremendous symbolic defeat for the issue. Another more cynical suggestion as to why he doesn't go forward, although he appears to have the numbers, is that the issue is useful to conservatives to rile up the part of their base that is furthest to the right. That is, if he wants to keep his supporters who are furthest to the right in his quarter, then he must continue to say that he intends to revise the Constitution on his watch. 
Although, given the fact of the coronavirus and other political issues facing Japan, it is less and less likely that there is even time, while his term remains in effect, for revision and a referendum to be held. So these are some ideas that come out in the discussion about just how big a deal it is for Abe. And one last thought there is that the changes enacted under the new security legislation of 2015, in fact, pretty much gut Article 9 anyway, and therefore the actual need in terms of what you might ever want to do with the LDP in terms of deploying it somewhere, he's already got the authorization to do anything he might actually need to do to meet a military threat. So at that point, from 2015 onwards, the need, if we can call it that, to revise Article 9 has radically decreased. As you said, Abe has the numbers in the diet to change the constitution, but he still hasn't gone forward with revision. So it seems like where he lacks numbers is in support, actually. And we know from public opinion polls, too, that a majority of Japanese people oppose constitutional revision. And as you mentioned, in some cases, have actually taken to the streets to protest it. So can you describe what is the history of civic activism around this question of constitutional revision and what type of actions have people in Japan taken to oppose it? Certainly. There's a long history there. We can go back as far as 1959 and a case called the Sunagawa case, in which a number of protesters breached the American military base at Tachikawa, opposing the maintenance of weaponry on Japanese soil once the Constitution was in effect. So from their point of view, keeping military bases of a foreign power on Japanese soil while the post-war constitution is in effect is a violation of the constitution. So there was a major protest action there, and it produced a court judgment eventually which took the Supreme Court out of rulings on the constitutionality of government policies. So that produced a very strange situation in which the highest court of the land is not allowed to rule on cases proceeding from the country's highest law code, that is, the Constitution. So from the Sunagawa case on, there have been a variety of different kinds of civic activism around the Constitution. So from the widest point of view, the whole AMPO demonstrations of the 1960s continuing into the 1970s had to do with the Constitution and specifically the question of ongoing military bases on Japanese soil. The 1980s were a period of much less activity there, but since the 1990s, 
Japan has been debating new proposals to revise the post-war constitution. Some of the landmarks include publications of proposed new drafts for a constitution. For example, in 1994 by the Yomiuri newspapers, and then the Liberal Democratic Party published a draft for a new constitution in 2005 and revised it in 2012. A variety of small, or well, somewhat limited forms of opposition to that took place, but 2015, when the security legislation that I was discussing a moment ago was rammed through the Diet, we saw the largest opposition of the post-war years. It began in 2015, continued for months, and at that time, a student group called SEALDS was particularly prominent, and it was able, through its use of social media, to attract crowds ranging from 60,000 to 100,000 people, demonstrating in front of the National Diet Building in August of 2015. From their point of view, the new legislation was itself unconstitutional and violated Article 9, which they saw as completely destroyed by that legislation and thereby bypassing a formal revision process, denying the people their right to ratify or reject the changes that were made by that legislation. So, the protests revealed massive opposition to the LDP's proposals for constitutional revision and represent the most intense civic activism around the issue up to now. Following Prime Minister Abe's recent resignation, I followed up with Dr. Hardacre and asked her to share her thoughts on how Abe's resignation will impact the future of the constitutional revision debate in Japan. Most political commentators did not believe that Abe would have been able to accomplish constitutional revision even if he had finished out his term. His successor, Suga Yoshihide, has made it clear that he intends to follow the policies that Abe had put in place, saying that especially in the area of foreign relations, he does not anticipate initiating new moves. There were two politicians who blocked Abe's path to constitutional revision, directly or indirectly. First, Nakayama Taro, former foreign minister who retired in 2009. He had consolidated views on the Constitution across party lines for many years through the Diet's Constitution Investigation Committee. That's the Shuin Kempo Chosakai. It's now called the Constitution Examination Committee, Kempo Shinsakai. Nakayama's approach was to build consensus around the Constitution across parties through discussion and debate in this body. His approach was widely favored and has been advocated by the Constitutional Democrats and Socialists as well as in the LDP. Politicians on the left were even prepared in principle to add to the Constitution in the future, for example, by adding a clause regarding environmental rights. 
In upper house elections of 2012, 2013, and 2016, and in lower house elections of 2014 and 2017, the LDP and Komeito won significant victories that surpassed the two-thirds proportion of members that the LDP would have needed in order to bring a resolution for constitutional revision to the floor of the Diet. In spite of that, constitutional revision did not move forward. So why? The consensus model that Nakayama had established was too strong. In spite of significant pressure, Abe could not eradicate the opposition. The second politician blocking Abe from constitutional revision is Yamaguchi Natsuo, who's head of the Komeito. He is a lawyer himself and very well informed about the constitution. Komeito is the LDP's junior partner in their coalition government, and the LDP depends on Komeito's electioneering to keep its own candidates in office. Whenever Abe pushed for constitutional revision, Yamaguchi tirelessly pointed out that any such resolution would have to originate with the Diet, not the Prime Minister. He wanted a basis of agreement among the parties. When Abe returned to power in 2012, he wanted to push constitutional revision through the Diet, even without a consensus, just using the LDP's numerical strength. The strategy at first was to try to amend Article 96, which calls for a two-thirds majority in the Diet and a majority in a popular referendum. When that didn't work, and when the party's 2012 draft for constitutional revision was widely rejected, Abe had to withdraw it. Then he started talking about inscribing the self-defense force in the text of the Constitution in Article 9 as a proximate goal, plus three other smaller goals. One had to do with defining a state of emergency, another enhancing the prime minister's powers, and lastly, to prevent joint electoral districts from being established that would collapse two prefectures into one district and thus possibly deny a prefecture its own representative. But in the upper house elections of 2019, the LDP lost seats and thereafter the idea of constitutional revision went dormant. Abe knew it wouldn't be easy, so why did he continue to talk about revising Article 9? Probably in the hope of keeping his most conservative supporters happy, but they are not stupid, and they have been used before. Abe's successor, Mr. Suga, who is now head of the LDP, will have lots of other problems to worry about. Other contenders for the position were equally lukewarm. All three leading candidates' debates did not even bring up the issue. So I think it is safe to say that it is on the back burner now and for the foreseeable future. However, in an interview of September 14, Suga said that he would like to take on the issue of constitutional revision as head of the LDP based on discussion in the Constitutional Examination Committee.
It is a bit difficult to know what he actually means, but it suggests that he would try to unify the party's stance while seeking consensus in the diet body. As to the timing, it's hard to imagine that it would make sense for him to take this on while the coronavirus is still a major problem, while the economy is tanking, and while though the World Olympic Committee has said that it does intend to go forward next summer and hold the summer games in Japan, there may be all kinds of problems connected with that due to the low likelihood that the coronavirus would have been totally stamped out in Japan by that time, and the likelihood that players, staff, and audience for the Olympics coming in from overseas could start up future spikes in the virus. How it could possibly make sense for Suga to take on the issue of constitutional revision before those major issues are resolved, it just doesn't seem like a strong probability. I'm Tristan Gruneau visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University, and this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.